in the various forms and expressions of practice that we've been engaging in together. We are regularly pointed back towards and invited to engage with this dimension of our experience which we call body. Perhaps we call our body or we call the body. And so I'd like to speak about some elements of wisdom regarding the body. In the meditation practice, there's a very much a foundation we're invited to notice that we have a body, that it's here, that it's now, that we can give attention to it, as we've been doing. And in this, the body is the initial and we could say primary framework or reference for the development of mindfulness, of awareness, of presence. And equally, of course, it's the framework in which the yoga practice is explored. And so we find this commonality in different practices and different teachings from different traditions that brings us into contact with this that we call body. And we might relate to body through labels, through concepts, through ideas. And yet, when we turn to the actual experience to the directly felt sensory information, the sensations that we can observe, that we can feel, that we can touch and be touched by in our bodies, we see that there's something of much greater significance than the appearance, than the descriptions, than the concepts or the language we might use about our body or its particular features. And very much at the heart of the the Dharma teachings, the teachings of the Buddha, is the fundamental recognition that this body is subject to birth, to aging, to sickness and death. And that it is born, it arises, it appears, it grows, it develops, it seems, in a rather remarkable way inside another body. And having been born, it, and Helen touched on this yesterday, we see the process of aging. And that the third, the sort of the, the way our body changes in time and inexorably in life. And the, the third word that the Buddha used, talking here, the birth, aging, sickness, death, Sickness, I always used to wonder, why did he put it in that order? Because surely sickness happens before aging. I got sick long before I had any idea my body was getting old. And and it's interesting because I think what the Buddha was pointing to there and the language he was using, of which, of course, sickness is just a translation, is that kind of process that the body goes through whereby, in a way, it becomes sick and it doesn't get better in that way that we might be ill when we're young, but then we get better, hopefully. And I was recently reading a a book in which the the author translated the term as not sickness, but as decay. And I thought, ooh, yeah, that's the word. So aging, decay. And you go, oh, yeah, okay. 
you get the impression of the sort of the one-wayness of that process, don't you? And, uh, and, and death, that's a perhaps more straightforward translation. <laughs> Contemplating this is something that's really at the centre of, of what moves us to engage in spiritual practice, to see that we're not here forever. And that not only are we not here forever, but certain elements of this journey will be challenging. Very likely for us. I just reached just last week, um, in fact, well actually no, it's still this week, it was on Monday, before we uh, began the retreat. Possibly Tuesday now that I think my memory's a little confused or unclear. But anyway, not so long ago, um, this really diverting me from what I wanted to say. Um, I used to have a better memory. <laughs> um, that's not what I was going to speak about. But a friend of, of mine and my wife Catherine's is in hospital with uh, a cancer that's accelerating, it seems, and uh, just had the opportunity to sit with him and spend some time. And he to me, very touchingly invited both of us to spend a little time with our hand on the place where this cauliflower-like tumour is pushing through his ribs, while at the same time it's compressing his lungs, growing in the other direction. And it's kind of like, just to really say, oh, this is his body now. This is his body. It's doing this. And he doesn't really have too much longer. But he was still able to and so we both spent some time with this to see, oh yeah, his body is in a process of active decay, heading for death. It's not going slowly, it's not particularly easy. And he's in a hospice now, out of the hospital, and uh, don't know if he'll be there to visit next week. But something about that, it's part of our lives. We all encounter this. We all know people, perhaps, probably. Perhaps people close to us. We've been touched by this. And yet somehow it's not easy for us to really just stop and say, oh yes, this is part of what's here for us as human beings. And the, the invitation to just acknowledge, to contemplate, yes, this is the reality. This is the truth. This is the story of the body. And so here at Guy House we have in the room next door, as perhaps some of you, maybe many of you, have taken the opportunity to visit, a, a skeleton. Now it's interesting, we say there's a skeleton sitting over in that room and we think, oh I don't know, should I go and look at it? It might be a bit sort of strange. might even you know, look a bit sort of scary. But interestingly, you know, it's not just that there's a skeleton sitting in that room over there, the walking room. There's about 50 skeletons sitting in this room. Really, there are. But they're just covered up. You know, inside our bodies. But all of our bodies have those skeletons in them. Or we wouldn't be sitting here. And it's kind of interesting just to think, oh, oh yeah, that's true, isn't it? We've all got those skeletons going on in here. And yet something about the process of getting from here to there, hmm, yeah, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? So the fact that this human existence is subject to a profound and inevitable, unstoppable vulnerability, that this is something to really let ourselves look at, feel into, 
take account of in a way. Because when we don't, the the kind of the, the biological urge for survival that's natural and appropriate within us all shows itself in a kind of a fear that we can have fear about all kinds of things or anxiety about things. You know, in the end, most of what we're afraid of in some way or another comes back down to some way in which we feel our survival will be threatened. And the preservation and the protection of this existence, the survival of our body, can drive so much of our activity. And it's understandable, you know, that we, we need to take care of just the, 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 the simple physical needs of, of, of food and shelter and clothing, you know. And most of the time in this country we think of shelter as somewhere, to, you know, so that we, we keep warm enough. And, you know, on an occasional day to, like today, we might think of shelter as something that will actually keep the sun off us, you know, which is a strange thought to have in England, but it's sometimes true. You know, I'm not sure I've seen those um, umbrellas outside on the picnic tables before. They've probably been here a long time, but they just don't get to get used that often. And yet we see, oh yeah, it's important that we take care of these sort of things. Because our body's engaged in the attempt to protect itself a lot of the time and we're not aware of it. You know, when we um, feel ourselves tightening, contracting against something that feels uncomfortable or feels threatening in some way, it's the, it's the tendency of the body to try and shrink that's being expressed. And if you see, you know, you've seen maybe pictures of what happens with an anemone when it's touched and it pulls back. Well, it's an anemone, isn't it? I was mispronounced. Probably I'm not the only one. Um, oh, and if you've ever seen like a, an amoeba under a microscope when it's gently prodded with something and it just sort of pulls away from whatever is there, it's like it's trying to protect itself and it shrinks, it tightens. And like we have umpteen billion of those soft little bags full of juice we call cells in our body and when they feel threatened they shrink, they pull away, they tighten. And it's just like um, the possums in uh, North America. You know the expression playing possum? Do you have that expression here? Or may maybe some, some nod, some not. So um, it's obviously not so well known here but it's, it's like playing dead because the, the North American opossum, different than the Australian one, the North American opossum when it, it's caught on the ground away from safety by a predator, pretends to be dead. Because most of the things that eat it don't want to eat something dead. They want live prey. And so sometimes it works that, you know, the bear or the wolf or the fox or mountain lion or whatever it might be, coyote, that find that it's caught it, loses interest because it's not moving, lying on the ground. Of course, it's a good strategy if you... If, if it works, but if it doesn't, and they think, oh, this looks, you know, it's, it's like a ready packaged, available, warm meal on, you know, then it's, it's lost the option of escaping. So it doesn't always work for it, but that tendency to kind of shrink in the face of fear, or to, you know, like little children sometimes, if they hide their eyes, they think you can't see them. It's that same kind of mechanism. If we can disappear, then we'll be safe. And it can show in lots of ways, psychologically as well as physiologically. But just being aware of the physical activity of contraction, of tightness, to see, oh yeah, that's usually got to do with something to do with fear. And of course the other way it works is sometimes we try and puff ourselves up when we feel threatened. And uh, again, you're probably all familiar with that 
experience in the back of the neck, you know, the, the tingling feeling when there's some scary noise outside and, and at night in the dark and, and there's a tingling. And again, I'm sure you know this, but if you see a cat after it gets a fright, all the fur stands up and it looks twice as big. It's like it's, it's trying to scare off whatever was threatening it by looking bigger. This is the other thing we do. And this is kind of the way in which when we react with anger or aggression towards things that, or people or situations or experiences in ourselves that we feel threatened by, that's kind of what's going on. We're sort of, there's a sort of way in which we puff up when we get angry and say, you were wrong and bad and shouldn't have done that and I'm going to teach you a lesson. Sometimes, of course, we do it to ourselves and that's really painful. When part of us is kind of being big and strong and the other part of us is feeling monstered when we're harsh or critical towards ourselves. It can be like that sometimes. And so it's important to understand these mechanisms or these patterns, often you know, unconscious, unquestioned, and you know, being expressed by many people around us, so we just learn to do the same, that these are attempts by our mind-body system to try and protect ourselves from harm. The root of that pattern or those tendencies is actually out of coming out of caring for ourselves or for what's here. It becomes distorted in its expression in such a way as it's not helpful or useful or effective most of the time. But it's really important to not judge those places of fear or shrinking, those places of anger or aggression. It's helpful so far as we can not to act them out unconsciously because it leads to more suffering generally. But to actually see, oh, there's, there's some need for something to be taken care of here. And to actually let ourselves know and feel that sense of caring that underlies the fear or the reactivity. The tendency with the fear is to, for it to push us into the future. To go into what might happen, what will happen if and when this difficult or bad thing happens. And um, we just imagine, you know, something really terrible. I remember being in hospital in India once and uh, the doctor coming in after having done various tests and I'd been carried in like a kind of sack of potatoes really. I was pretty, pretty unwell. But they didn't know what was wrong with me initially. Then eventually the doctor, after some tests, they said, looks like you probably have hepatitis and maybe malaria as well. And I remember the moment we were just like, terror, and oh, I'm going to die then. You know? That's what it was. It was just this moment of, okay, it couldn't really be much worse, I'm going to die. Now, you can tell I didn't. Um, well, I hope you can. Um, but the sense of how... What I felt in that was also this kind of being carried away into what's going to happen now. And that's what fear does. It takes us from where we are into the future. So one of the really useful things to be able to remember with fear is that it's always happening right here. It tells a story about what's going to happen in the future. 
what it will be like if this thing doesn't go away or if this thing I don't want to happen happens. It tells a story about that. But the experience is happening right here. And this is the place we can meet it. This is the place we can be with it. And it's the body that's the vehicle for that. In that if we can feel in our body what's happening when we're afraid or anxious and make space for that experience. And it might be expressed as a place of contraction or numbness or a sense of activation. By making space for that experience in the body it starts to open up. We start to actually experience it for what it is, which is the life of the body. Attempting to engage with something. And the interesting thing is that fear, by definition, is pretty much one of the quintessentially painful things we can encounter. It's really hard to just be with pain, with fear, sorry. And it's very good at getting us to try and think of what we have to do to try and prevent it happening. Sometimes that's useful, of course, it's appropriate. And to understand the difference between caution and fear. Caution is when we recognize there is some danger. And then we pay attention where we are to make sure we don't get into danger or we protect ourselves from that danger. So caution actually brings us into more into where we are. And it's very different than fear, which sort of takes us away and makes us more likely to get into trouble. I had a very, um, very interesting experience of that when I was teaching in Sweden um, a few weeks ago. And uh, one of the students on the retreat mentioned that there was an adder by the lake. And I was fascinated. We don't have any snakes in New Zealand where I come from. And hardly seen very few snakes in my life, certainly not in the wild. And yet it's a poisonous snake in Adder. So I remember walking down there, being really, really interested to see it, and a little bit scared in case it bit me. But I couldn't not go and look. And yet I thought, I'm going to feel really foolish if I get bitten here. It's apparently really painful, you get really sick, probably won't be able to teach the rest of the retreat. And yet what I noticed was that I didn't think about, hmm, should I be mindful? Should I pay attention to where I put each foot? I didn't have to make an intention for that. It was immediately clear. Oh, go slowly, move mindfully, be attentive. It was really obvious that that was the thing to do. And I'm sure anyone who'd never heard of meditation or mindfulness or any of this would have gone similarly if they knew there was an adder in this place. If they'd been smart, they might not have gone there, but no, that was beyond me at the time. Um, but that sense of, oh, when we, when we see yeah, that there's a, a need to take care of our body, naturally we start to be more present with that interest to see what's happening. And the same thing happens, I think, just even walking barefoot on the grass when there's sometimes some bees buzzing around looking for the flowers. And perhaps out of concern for the bee, but equally and understandably concerned for oneself, we don't want to stand on one of the bees. So it's like, oh, the foot goes down really slowly. And we really pay attention, and we're much less likely to be distracted. You know, there's a, a stories of... Um, in Thailand, of the monks used to, and the nuns would sometimes go and sit on paths where tigers were known to come. And apparently they stayed really awake and alert. 
and didn't have a lot of problem with drowsiness. And apparently none of them came back and said they were eaten, so, you know, maybe it was okay. I don't know if any of the monks or nuns ever died in that situation, but kind of remarkable thing to do. Scary, I would imagine, but I imagine you would stay really alert. And I'm not suggesting we have to practice in that particular kind of way, you know, sitting on the side of a road waiting to see if a car comes past, maybe. But to notice that, oh yeah, there's a lot of energy in this territory for us. And the reality is that most of the energy that we have caught up in relation to that movement of fear isn't actually relating to what's happening, but only to our thoughts and imaginations about what might happen. As Mark Twain once said, almost all of the worst experiences of my life never happened. But thinking about the things that might happen that would be really bad becomes one of the worst experiences. Often actually more painful than if the thing we're scared of happening happens. Because if it happens, then we actually start to deal with it. We can engage with it. It may be tragic and painful, but we can meet it. When it hasn't happened, we can't meet it. We can't deal with it. We just become lost in trying to figure out how to try and prevent it happening. So this body is an interesting thing to be invited to pay attention to, to inhabit more fully and consciously. I mean, it might sound like an attractive idea. We might think, yeah, that's a good idea. I'd like to do that. And then we find it's not so easy. I find at times our mind is enthusiastically departing for all other directions. You know, It's not just like it slips away quietly. It's like, let me out of here in a certain way. What is it that's going on? I mean, the body is not in our control. This body, the experiences that arise in this body, is not in our control. It's part of the nature of things. And the nature of things is that things are not in our control. Because this particular thing seems very close to us, and sometimes we can get it to do certain things. We kind of think it should be according to how we wish it to be. But it's not. It can experience remarkable sweetness, pleasure, and you know, ecstatic bliss. And it can experience incredible, excruciating, unbearable pain. And a range of experiences in between. And we don't get to choose the mixture ourselves. Or as we know what we choose, well, I know what I'd choose. We choose not to have any pain. Most of us, I imagine. And yet it's interesting what that means is our relationship to the body is often one in which we don't really trust it because it could, it, could feel, it could make us have to feel pain. And so we tend to live outside of it. You know that line from James Joyce, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance away from his body. And that's how we can live so much of the time. And coming back into our bodies initially, we find actually it's not so easy because we feel sometimes the places of distress or disconnect or discomfort that we've been unable or unwilling to inhabit up till now. 
And so it's actually really painful to feel our body when it's in the grip of reactivity, of fear, of anger, of confusion, of just agitation and busyness. It's actually quite painful to feel it, which is part of why we tend to find ourselves so quickly and easily being kind of, it seems, propelled into mental activity. It's sort of like an escape from the bodily experience. It's not easy to bear. And yet what's interesting is that as we start to make contact with the body, as we start to make friends with those experiences that aren't so easy to inhabit, to, to, to bear, as the body starts to, it becomes more open, we start to feel more connected and less, even though there might still be those reactivities arising, we're less in the grip of them. Then what's interesting is that the, the body starts to feel soft. It starts to feel more open. It starts to become a place that we're drawn to or attracted to inhabit it. Because actually there's something nourishing, there's something beautiful. There's something lovely about it, inhabiting the body when it's soft, when it's relaxed, when it's open. It's actually deeply attractive to us and, and there's something very beneficial and actually very healing about that. And so part of what happens in the meditation is, is the body begins to open. And in the yoga, likewise, the body begins to open. We notice this, we see this, you speak to us about it and report it. And in that it starts to become a place where, oh yeah, this is actually somewhere I would wish to abide. And that can draw us or call us, invite us to to be more fully there, to be more deeply in this body. And so we need to listen to the body. We need to understand it has its wisdom, it has its dharma, the way it is. And with those difficult places, there's possibility we have to soften, to relax, to allow the experience to be felt. And in that being felt, giving it space. So one of the things we tend to do is sort of trying to focus in on places that are tight or contracted or painful. And often that's not helpful, often because it's driven by some idea that if I can really be mindful of it, then it will go away. Then it will stop being so difficult. And it's actually some form of aversion going on there. So if we can actually give it space, and sometimes we need to kind of make our attention very soft. As I was speaking with someone in one of the groups this morning, or the group this morning, um, just kind of giving space to something that's tight in the body. We can feel the space around it or inside it. And often that allows it to feel more relaxed when we're not coming with an agenda, when we're not putting pressure on it. And the interesting thing is that with this bodies and with the pain we can encounter, it actually, it's asking us something important. It's saying, pay attention here. Saying, look at what's going on in this place. I had the, uh, for me, very, felt like quite a privilege, though also a challenge, in the opportunity some many years ago now to work in a street clinic in Calcutta, um, which was providing free medical care and support for the the poor people who lived on the streets in a really difficult situation, really hard circumstances and uh, 
One of the things that I learned there, which still is amazing to me in a certain way, was we were working, among other things, with, with the, the sufferers from leprosy. And I had the probably very common belief amongst those of us who've lived far distant from any risk of that, that leprosy was this horrible disease that makes bits of your fingers and your lips and that fall off. And it's really gross and debilitating disease. And what I discovered there, one of the um, medical staff telling me when we were working with some leprosy patients, that actually leprosy doesn't do that at all. What leprosy does is it kills the nerves. So you can't feel pain. And for people who are poor, not well educated, little personal hygiene, when they cut themselves or they burn themselves, it gets infected, it doesn't get cleaned, it gets infected, they don't feel the pain. They don't pay attention to it. So they don't take care of it. So that's how it actually gets infected and ultimately um, diseased, rots and falls off. Pieces of tissue are lost in their way, or parts of the body. And the thing that was really, it's still, again, you know, I, I find myself when I reflect on it, wow. The thing that would make the greatest difference to the life of a leprosy sufferer would be to be able to feel pain. Because they would know then, oh, I've hurt myself. I need to take care of this. And how that translates into this situation in terms of practice, what it's saying is, oh yeah, when there's some pain arising, I need to pay attention to this place. It needs some care. Because actually mostly what we're saying, I don't want to feel it. I don't want to experience it. But it needs us to be there. It might need us to say, okay, we need to make a change. We need to take care of something. It might be that it just needs us to say, okay, can I soften here? Can I bring some kindness to this place? Because when we withdraw from those places in ourself, in our body, in our experience, when we remove ourselves, when we're unwilling to let ourselves feel, be touched, be affected by this, which is an expression of the life of our body, we become more distant, more disconnected. We harden, we desensitize, we disconnect. And that is actually the deeper suffering, to be apart from the aliveness of our body and of our life. That's the deeper suffering. And our practice invites us to again and again come back into contact, to make contact with, to sense into, to feel, to begin to open, to take the risk that it might not be comfortable, but to understand that to become disconnected from our experience is actually the deeper suffering. And in terms of meeting with, befriending, we could say, making space for those places that aren't easy, our bodies, in our bodies, in our experience, in ourselves, it's really important that we understand it's not to try and make the experience go away. We're not trying to push away what's happening. And I'm just getting this vague sense. I didn't talk about this on the first night, did I? Because 
I had this very funny experience in Sweden just now when I was teaching, where I started, and on both the two, two nights apart, I talked about exactly the same thing for about five minutes. Because I'm never sure, I know I've talked about it before, but I'm never sure that I talk about it yesterday, or was it two weeks ago, was it two years ago that I talked about this. Anyway, it's good to check, um, sometimes anyway. That with that experience of um, not making, noticing the tendency of wanting to make it go away, if we're in any way coming from that place, it's more aversion, it's more pressure, it's more contraction. And the interesting thing is it doesn't work. Sometimes we have the experience that we're with some place that's not easy for us and we notice just in being with it, it opens up. It softens. It releases or it changes in some way and think, oh wow, oh that's great, that's how you do it, good, now I know, okay. And so the next time we think, so, so why isn't it going away? I'm being with it, aren't I? There's a sort of grace we get the first time but then after that it's not quite the same and as Ram Das once said, he said, you know, you can't be with something to make it go away because it knows. <laughs> it does. It knows. I mean, it's like if someone came up to you and said, oh, oh, it's really great to see you. I'm really fond of you. Just, and I'll really be kind and nice to you as long as you leave really soon. You know? <laughs> great. Thanks, you know. And it knows because, of course, it's connected to us. It is us, in a certain sense, or it's part of the same system. If my knee hurts and I'm trying to be with it, so it'll go away. It's like, oh, the marker of when we can really be with something is that it's okay if it stays and it's okay if it goes. Then there's actually really space for whatever needs to happen to happen. So we also need to forgive this body for the fact that it can and does experience pain and limitation. Because that's its nature. It's not its fault. It's not because our body went wrong that it's sometimes ill, that it sometimes aches, that it inevitably moves through the journeys of ageing, decay, and ultimately to death. It's not something that's gone wrong. It's the nature of it. And when we see that this is the nature of all things, they move, they change, they don't stay the same, we can start to see that, oh yes, this body, it is of this nature, the nature of all things. And as I said, you know, we might start to look at it a little differently because it's so quick and habitual and familiar to think it's my body, isn't it? Isn't that why we think so easily? It's my body. But we know, don't we, that we're not the only inhabitants of this organic tissue? We do know that, don't we? You know, there are hundreds and thousands, in fact, billions of other inhabitants in here. It's filled with them. There's ten bacteria for every cell of <laughs> bodily tissue. If this thing was a democracy, we wouldn't be in charge. And, and well, we're not, actually, which kind of explains a little bit how it happens the way it does. We said, but I voted for this. And, oh, yeah, but there was 10 billion little fellas, guys and girls, 
voting for something else, like having a cough, for instance, or a cold sometimes, or sometimes something worse. And that's not easy for us. But to see, oh yeah, that's how it is. There's an interesting way in which I think part of why we don't quite let that in is because it's kind of embarrassing that we're not even in charge of this, that we're not the only inhabitant here. You know, 10 cells of bacterium for every cell of human tissue. You know, that's seriously outnumbered in here. And I remember for years struggling with um, a condition which I continue to experience, which is, and you'll be familiar with it or have heard of it at least, you know, athlete's foot. It's like, it's a fungus. It's like having mushrooms between your toes. They're not quite as big as mushrooms, but basically it's a fungus that slowly consumes the tissue of the skin. And for various reasons, it's something I have, and I spent a lot of time trying to get rid of it in my life. And I've spent quite a few decades now having made my peace with it, because clearly it's going to be here. And we've kind of got a sort of an agreement as to how much territory it can have, and I try and keep it within that territory, and it tries to have a bit more sometimes, but it's, it's okay. But what's really interesting is that there's something about the embarrassment of it that was actually most of the suffering. It's like, how can there be something eating between my toes? And then you think, it's probably thinking, how come there's something that won't let me have the rest of it? You know? Because in the end, actually all those little guys get the whole thing. They do. They'll be here when I'm gone. Or their, or their great-great-grand kids at least because they'll have turned over a few times it seems in that kind of succession so in a way we could say it's a co-housing project (laughs) and we're not even the landlord we're just another one of the inhabitants if we see that can we hold it more lightly Can we be more soft around its limitations? Can we equally, for all that it might feel tight, or sometimes it feels like it needs a lot of um, redecorating or renovating or rebuilding, can we also see, oh, how fortunate to have this place to be, this location for our existence? Because it's what we have. It seems. And, you know, what is it? This body. It's a hollow tube. Put food in one end and something else comes out the other. As Helen was saying, it kind of grows itself, does its own thing. Breathing happens by itself. And yet, If we really get that, oh, this body is living, expressing itself. It's not who we are. It's not apart from what we are. It's a field in which we can explore, into which we can relax, and through which we can open into some remarkable discovery. The Buddha once said that within this fathom-long body, which is about six feet, 180 centimeters, within this fathom-long body, 
the whole of the Dharma is revealed. The truth of suffering and its end. The truth of freedom and the path there too. It's all revealed in our body, in this life that's happening right here. And this body, it reveals the nature of all things. This remarkable consciousness, this wakeful, vital aliveness, co-arising, we could say, with body, inhabiting, it seems, body. This shared experience of sensitivity and vulnerability that comes to us through this body, that connects us all, because all of life has a body in one form or shape or another. Whether a body that's made of physical elements or bodies in other forms, life expresses itself in that way. And if we see that we're part of this, that we're sharing in this body and we're sharing in this earth, we're sharing in this world, in this life, then isn't it naturally the case that we'd want to take care of all the expressions of life that share together in these bodies, in this world? Isn't that naturally what would come from us if we open into the truth of our life here? And the precious and mysterious unfoldment of things that's happening moment after moment after moment. So can we inhabit this body with an open heart? And with a care for all of life. Not defended against the challenges of life or trying to control them. But actually connected to the flow, to the movement, to the fluidity. Which reveals something vast, something dynamic, something unstoppable, uncontainable, ungraspable, but unstoppable. that is not bound to these bodies that are born and die, that is not limited to the shapes and the frameworks within which this life is expressed, and yet is not found any, in any other way apart from the simple experience that's happening right here and now and in every moment. Can we notice the quieting of heart and mind and body that's settling into the silence that's soft and yet firm? And just allow what's here to speak to us in the language that has no words but which we all know in our hearts, which we all know in our bodies. 
So let's sit quietly for a few moments. So may we all come to deepen and to soften into our bodies and into our lives, to know the Dharma that speaks to us through these bodies and through these lives, that speaks to us of sensitivity and connection, of openness and of freedom for our own well-being and for the welfare of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.